recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. resurrection by starting to speak about death. Uh, it's kind of, we have to talk about death before we can actually appreciate resurrection. And so uh, as we kind of start, I was at the reservoir as I often am uh, when I'm preaching and preparing. Um, and I saw this interesting site that kind of is a great way for us to launch into this morning. I don't know if you've ever been to the reservoir, but there's areas where you can just see this massive body of water, and it's spectacular. It's just beautiful, surrounded by bush. And I saw this couple, and they were sitting where they could see the water, but they couldn't because they were sitting in front of a massive bush facing the water. And I'm like, why would you do that? Like, why would you go to such an amazing, picturesque vista with this incredible view and sit in the one place where you actually couldn't see the view it just made no sense and then as I was preparing I kind of went that's kind of how death is sometimes in our lives when death comes to our lives it so consumes our vision it overwhelms us that we can't see anything beyond it you know but that's the good news of Easter that we can actually see beyond the grave. And so my message this morning is entitled Hope Beyond the Grave because that's the good news of Jesus' resurrection, that death doesn't have the last word. It doesn't need to consume our vision and plunge us into a darkness of despair because there is hope beyond the grave. There is something beyond that we can know with assurance and confidence, not as a vague, uncertain reality but as a confident truth that we can build our lives on. So this morning, I want to speak to you on this idea of hope beyond the grave. And I want to do it in a little bit of a different way. I want to kind of do it in three acts, if you like, or three mini sermons. Um, and so the first two I'm going to do now, and then we're going to do some more singing. And then I'm going to come back to do act three, a bit like a Shakespearean drama. Um, because each of these, they're all connected. It's the one sermon, if you like. But each of these acts are kind of mini sermons in and of themselves. And they're going to be based in three very, very different passages, but they're all connected. So kind of three-act sermon. So act one is the darkness of death. The darkness of death. And for this, we need to go to the place where we've been the last little while. Where better place to go than Ecclesiastes, right? That's the most despairing, dark place. So let's go there. Let's go to the darkness of death. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and see what the writer Kohelet, the teacher, has to say to us about death. Now, death is not a topic we like talking about. Even among Christians, if you go to funerals, they, they say things like, they rarely say he's died. You know, he's gone to be with the Lord, he's passed, he's, she has passed on, they've gone to a better place. All what they call euphemisms, because we just don't like saying, they've just died. They're just they're dead. There's something about death that kind of we, we, we recoil from. Uh, just a couple of quotes to get us thinking about this reality. Uh, if you can put that next slide up. Oh, it's, there it is. Of all things that move men, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. A sociologist by the name of Ernest Becker said, so I love Woody Allen's quote, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. 
If we take life, this is profound. This is Warren Weasby, who's a Bible commentator. He says this, if we take life seriously, then we can't treat death flippantly. The only way to be prepared to live is to be prepared to die. Death is a fact of life. I think that's profound. And so when we come to Ecclesiastes 9, we find that the teacher is very real with us about death. As we found with everything the teacher has been telling us, Kohelet doesn't pull any punches. He tells us about life as it is. And so in this first act, I want to consider the three things that Kohelet wants us to hear and understand about death. The first thing that he tells us in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9 is that death is unavoidable. Death is unavoidable. We can't escape it. Now, you, look, we understand that in our culture, there's many an attempts to dodge the bullet, as we say. You know, we, we try all kinds of things to prolong our lives. We try and eat healthy, exercise, all good things. But really, at the end of it, it's to try and live as long as we can, is it not? And in our culture, as medical science advances and technology advances, we're constantly on the lookout for ways to be immortal, to not actually die. But the teacher says, death is unavoidable. Look at the way he says it. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Here it is the first time he says it. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. What is he trying to say here? In, in every category is listed. Good people, bad people, smart people, foolish people, people who are rich, people who are poor. Every category of people will die. It is unavoidable. A bleak, harsh reality. But one that we need to grapple with as we face our own mortality. The second thing he tells us is that death is final. There's no do-overs. You don't get a second chance. In the New Testament, we're told that it is appointed for all men to die and then judgment. It's like the end point where the train doesn't go any further. And in verses 4 to, 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 um, four to 6, he brings this out. He says this, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a, a live dog is better than a dead lion. And we see last week, oh, sorry, on Friday when we talked about Martha and Mary and, and their journey through death. As long as Lazarus was alive, there was hope. And they sent word to Jesus saying, please come, our brother is sick. Will you heal him and save him, prevent death? As long as there is life, there is hope. But the teacher goes on to say, when death comes, there's a finality that comes. For the living, he says in verse 5, know that they will die, but the dead, they know nothing. There is no more learning. There's no more understanding. The knowing stops at death. There's no more reward after you're dead. He's used that language throughout in Ecclesiastes, the idea of toiling and laboring for a reward. Well, when you die, there's no more reward. There's no more memory of you. And he said that to us before. Generations come, generations go. And when you're gone, likely that you too will be forgotten. 
relationships end. He says their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. The dead have no emotional connections, no, no relationships anymore. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. When you're dead, you don't get to contribute to the, the realities of the, uh, the world we live in anymore. And then if you jump to verse 10, he says, In the realm of the dead, where you are going, there's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Everything comes to an end with death. Sobering challenging, confronting. That, that's why the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, wants us to sit with these realities because they're true and we all know them in our hearts to be true. But sometimes we buy into the illusion around us and we forget these harsh realities. And he's trying to remind us because he wants us to reflect soberly on the reality of how we're supposed to live with these truths. The third thing that he tells us about death is that life and death are kind of mysterious, unexpected. They will hit you in the moment you least expect it. And as we look at verses 11 and 12, we see this. He says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Whenever I read this, I think of Stephen Bradbury, 2002 Winter Olympics. All right, if you don't know the story, look it up on YouTube. He was not the favorite to win, and yet everyone who was the favorite, who were all in front of him, tripped and fell. And Stephen Bradbury, I think he was at, at the back of the pack. He was the last guy and just cruised in and, and won gold. Right? The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, chance, there is not the, the idea of chance that we, luck that we think of in the world. The, the Hebrew word chance just means circumstance or event that happens in your life. Time and those circumstances happen to everybody. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As a, as a fish is caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. No fish goes out swimming going, today I'm going to be trapped and die. That's the point. No bird is flying around going, today is going to be the last day I'm going to live and fly around. Life is like that. But you know, so often we think that we know and that we can control that. I, you know, I've talked to many people in my years of ministry uh, about them considering the gospel and considering Jesus and then go, you know, when I get closer to the end of my life, I'll, I'll think about Jesus. But the question is, how do you know when that end point will come? And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, well, you'd be foolish if you lived your life thinking that you can predict that moment. It comes unexpectedly. Even when you know it's coming. I remember being at the hospital and visiting my mom when she was very, very sick and she was, we knew she was dying. She was in her last moments. You know, and yet it comes as a shock. You're never prepared for it. And that's what the writer says. He, said, he says here that life and death happens unexpectedly when you least think it's going to happen. But it is the one reality we must all face. It is the one appointment we will all keep. You know the saying, there's two things you can be sure of in life, death and taxes. The writer of the Ecclesiastes would go, yeah, that's true. 
And so that's why in his whole letter and over and over again, he reminds us how to live. Verse 7 to 10, he says, in light of this, in light of the fact that none of us can avoid death, that death will come unexpectedly and death will end everything good in your life. He's, he's, his application for us or his encouragement to us is, well, go eat food with gladness and drink your wine. In other words, enjoy leisurely meals with the people you love. Enjoy good food and, and wine and good coffee and, and all of those good things with a joyful heart, with thankfulness and worship to God because it's he's the one that's given this ability for you to enjoy. He's approved already what you do. Be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. These are expressions that talk about celebrations. People wore white and, and they, anointed their hell when they anointed their head when they had a special event and a, a special thing to celebrate. And in this time, that happened very rarely, only on really important occasions. And he's saying, do it often. Celebrate often. Enjoy these good gifts often. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. Enjoy those intimate and deep relationships that you're, you're blessed with. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. And then verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because in the realm of the dead where you are going, you can't do anything else. So right now, when you have opportunity to do stuff, do it with your whole heart. Why would you not do it fully invested? Give your whole self to it. Do it with everything. And he's again, in the New Testament, Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3. He says, as a, as a worker, when you're working, do it with all your heart as though you're doing it to Jesus. And the teacher, he's saying, in the light of what I'm teaching you about death that's coming, live well now. Live well now. But again, as we've found in several points, so now we're moving to Act 2. And if you're following along in your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. But as we find in several places in Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher is kind of ambivalent about what happens after death. He, he's quite confident and sure about what happens at that point. But beyond that, he's vague. It's a mystery. It is full of uncertainty. And he's not really sure what that's going to look like. And so the second act that we want to consider this morning is the light of resurrection. There's the death of darkness that we see in Ecclesiastes 9. But that's not the whole story. As we step into the New Testament and, and Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 15, it's profound how the light of resurrection ought to change everything about our understanding of death. It's what gives us the hope beyond the grave. And see, Paul kind of picks up where the teacher leaves it because the teacher says, look, because we don't know what happens after death and death is coming to everyone, we should just live well here and now. Important and good principle to live by, definitely. But Paul picks up and goes, hang on a second. If we only have hope for this life, then we're to be pitied above everyone. Listen to what he says in, in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in christ they're lost if only for this life we have hope in christ we are of all people most to be pitied and then when you jump down to verse 29 he says now if there is no resurrection then what will those who do who are baptized for the dead interestingly no one really knows what that phrase is bible commentators have debated that for years and they're not really sure what paul's talking about there just so you know if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? 
And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Well, he's saying, why do we endure the hardships of ministry? Why would we do that? He says, I face death every day, verse 31. Yes, but as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and he's not talking about literally animals there, he's talking about you know, religious leaders who were, and people who were opposed to them. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, otherwise hope for this life, hope for here and now, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then... He's saying, let's be like Kohelet. Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul is in agreement with the teacher. He's in agreement with Kohelet and goes, if as Christians we only have hope under the sun, if we only have hope for this life, then we ought to take Kohelet's teaching and go, yep, let's just eat, drink, enjoy this life because tomorrow we're going to die. But Paul says that that life of the here and now life is to be pitied above all. If our Christian commitment to Christ, if our faith in Christ is only, if there's no resurrection, then we're still in our sins. We're lost. We're without hope. That those who've died, our brothers and sisters, our family, our loved ones who've gone before us, well, they're lost. There is no hope. But, verse 20, Paul says, but there is a but. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So I'm just going to list you the hope that Paul wants us to grab a hold of because of the resurrection, because Jesus has risen from the dead, because we serve a living Christ. He lists a whole bunch of stuff here. If you can just put up, there, there we go. We too are made alive in Christ, he says. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You will be made alive again. I will be made alive again because Jesus has risen. You and I will be resurrected. And in this chapter, he unpacks what that looks like. We will put on imperishable bodies. We will not be mortal anymore. We will put on immortality. We will have glorified bodies like Jesus, which is incredible and exciting when you look at the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus. That's what you and I will also inherit. We will be made alive like Jesus is alive. And he goes on to say, then the end will come when he will hand over the kingdoms of God the Father after he has destroyed, listen to this, all dominion, all authority, and all power, for he must reign until all things, he has put all his enemies under his feet. Because of the resurrection, our hope is that Jesus will one day triumph over every evil power, every dominion, every authority, and he will rule, and everything will be subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything that is not godly, everything that is not right in the world will bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus will triumph over all his enemies. And then he tells us that the last enemy, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death itself will be defeated. And he picks this up again in verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Death itself, our last enemy, our ultimate human fear, will be defeated, is defeated because of Jesus' resurrection. And we will experience the defeat of that in our moment of death. There is hope beyond the grave. He goes on to say, 
for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under his feet, it's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who puts everything under him so that God may be all in all. This is the beauty of the resurrection, the triumph over death and evil and dominion, that we can look forward to a day, as Paul expands in Ephesians, where all of creation will come under God's rule. The whole universe will be as God intended it to be, without sin, without death, without Satan and corruption in the world. The last thing that we can have hope in is in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the power of death is in sin. It's because, if, because we have sin in our lives, death can separate us ultimately from God. Death can separate you, separate me from knowing God's love and peace and living with God forever. That's the power of sin. But because Jesus has risen, we, we can be assured that God was satisfied with his sacrifice on the cross. And because Jesus is resurrected, we have vindication. God has approved Jesus' sacrifice. And so the power of sin is broken because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. And so we no longer need to fear that there'll be anything that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See if the band can jump up. So Paul's application you'll notice, is very different to Kohelet's. And that comes in verse 58 when he says, therefore, or so, or in light of everything I've said here, my dear brothers and sisters, he says, stand firm. In other words, don't give up. No matter how dark, no matter how difficult it gets, don't give up. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You see, he's saying, life lived under the lordship of Jesus is not meaningless. It's not a vapor. It's not futile. It's not a mist. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He says, don't hold back. Yes, you can enjoy life and enjoy God's good gifts, but there's more to life for a Christian than that. In light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that Jesus is alive, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Why? That's the third thing he says, because you know, he's speaking about a confidence that you and I can have, an assurance that you and I can have, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Same word that we've seen in Ecclesiastes, vanity. But Paul says, because of Jesus, because of his resurrection, it is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord, the things that you do, your faithfulness to keep loving God and loving others and serving Jesus and, and being given to, to the work of the Lord fully, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. And God will see that and honor that and bless that in the resurrection. And that's how we can have hope beyond the grave. As we come to Act 3, for this turn to John chapter 11. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We've already been here. In, on Good Friday, we spent a bit of time here. And the reason why I want to go back here is because as true as all of those things are that we've looked at, as true as the hope that we have in the resurrected Christ is real and is hope and it's concrete and it's certain, and as true as what we just sang, our God is an awesome God, the reality that we will all face is that we will go through dark times. We will go through really difficult seasons. Uh, being Christians doesn't make us immune from that. And 
while this hope is real, sometimes it can seem so distant in the next life when, when I die. But in the, between here and that day, there's so many dark valleys that we may still need to walk through. So how does all of this stuff that we've been talking about, the hope of the resurrection, the hope that Jesus is alive, affect that? How does it help us in those moments when we walk through dark valleys? Because Kohelet tells us that the good and the bad, the wise and the foolish, the rich, the poor, the righteous and the wicked will all go through the harsh realities of living in a broken world. How do we make sense of it? How do we walk through the valley? And even someone like David who... The Bible says, was a man after God, God's own heart, wrote Psalm 23, where he says, even though I walk through the valley, the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, it's the reality. And as we see in, in this account in John 11, as we consider this third act of this hope that we have in the midst of the darkness, because Mary and Martha, they loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. And we, we saw on Friday how the fact that Jesus loved them should not take away from the darkness they experience. And when we go through dark times, we shouldn't think that God stopped loving me somewhere along the way. And we saw that in the midst of their darkness, Jesus felt deeply for them. He was troubled. He was grieved by their pain and by their loss and by the brokenness that they were experiencing, the death that they were experiencing. And that's great comfort to us when we go through our dark times. And we also saw and, uh, how Dash mentioned how God knows the, the end from the beginning, even when we don't. And several times in that story, we see Jesus alluding to that, that I, I'm doing something that you, you don't understand, that's mysterious to you, but it's, it's to reveal the glory of God in this. And that's a truth that we can hold on to in our own dark periods, that God knows the end from the beginning. And we might not understand or appreciate everything that God's doing, but that doesn't mean God's not at work in that space. And I want us to go back to John 11 and, and look at four other things that will help us continue to have the assurance of faith in the midst of darkness because Jesus has risen. And the first is this, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's a profound statement. That assures us of the presence of Jesus. You see, because his resurrection proves that statement to be true. It wasn't just this random thing that Jesus was saying to impress people. He backed it up by rising from the dead and proving that he is truly the resurrection and the life. And because that's true, we have the assurance that he's always with us. That when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, well, that's true. Because he's alive. And by his spirit, he's in us, not just with us. Which is why Jesus said, it's good for you that I go to the cross, I rise again and ascend to the Father because when the spirit comes, he will make real in your heart my presence, my ongoing abiding presence. Because he is the resurrection and the life. The second thing that can give us great assurance is the promise that Jesus makes here. The promise of Jesus, he says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You see, what Jesus is saying there is that the worst that this world can throw at you, which is death, it doesn't have to defeat you. Because you live, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you live in the resurrected life and power that I came to give you, you can have that assurance that you will not just experience that here and now, but for all eternity. That life will never end for you. 
And because that life is so real and powerful, when you go through dark times, when you go through the deaths, when you experience the brokenness of your own life and the brokenness of the other people's lives, you can know eternal life pulsating through the very core of your being because I'm in you. That's my promise to you. That if you trust me and if you believe in me and if you abide in me and you keep walking in in me, you will never die in an ultimate final way. Never. You will always be in life, eternal life in you. What a great encouragement. The third thing that gives us assurance is the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus, how incredibly awesome that with one phrase, one command, Jesus can call forth a dead corpse, bring it back to life again. And he calls out to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. How awesome to know that. Can you imagine that scene? Something out of the mummy. But, but Jesus is so powerful. And as the resurrected one who's seated enthroned above everything, death itself, he can command and bring dead things to life. Now, he may not do that in every situation. And sometimes Christians are promised that. I don't think the scriptures ever promise that. But what incredibly assuring hope we have that we know he can and we know like Mary and Martha we can come to him and ask him and say Lord Jesus will you even now do something I believe that you can do something even now even though it seems impossible even though it seems all hope is gone even though it seems like there, this is final and there can be nothing after this I know that if, if you ask God he, he, he will do something that in our experiences of death in the dark valleys we have that same assurance Because Jesus' power is still the same. He's the same one. And he can, with a command, bring dead things to life in your life, in my life. And the last assurance that we have, and again, I'm sorry, band, to keep getting you up and down, up and down. I probably should have stayed there, but this is is the act three, the mini sermon at this one. But the last thing that I find so encouraging is that Jesus prays for us. He prays for us. We have his presence, we have his promise, we have his power. I had to alliterate something in the three acts, I'm sorry. But he prays for us, and I love this. In verse 41, he says, So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And listen to this. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying for your faith my faith in the midst of darkness. How awesome is that? Because he knows that when we go through dark times in the valleys, it's going to rattle us. It's going to raise questions for us. It's going to trouble us. It's going to make us wonder if God's still there, if God still loves us. How reassuring to know that Jesus in that moment is praying for you. He's praying for me, interceding on behalf of the Father that we might continue to believe in him especially in those moments when maybe he doesn't do what we think he ought to do or he doesn't answer the prayer in the way we want him to. But how is he praying? He's praying that we may believe in him that he was sent by the Father. And I love the two references I've put up there. Romans 8, which says this, 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you. Hebrews 7 says something very similar. But because Jesus lives forever, there's anchored in the resurrection. It's all anchored in the resurrection. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He's not like all the other priests that have come and gone, that lived a period of years and then died. He lives forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. What an incredible promise and assurance we can have. Jesus is praying for you. No wonder Paul can say in Romans 8.31, if, if this God, this risen, conquering king is for us, then who can be against us? Or what can be against us? So as we conclude our Easter service this morning with singing again, and Dash is going to come and lead us in a time of prayer, and I hope you can stick around for morning tea. But I want you just to bow your heads for a moment. Just sit with this wonderful truth. Open your heart to the presence of Jesus. And maybe you're going through some really difficult stuff. Maybe you're going through your own dark valley right now. Whatever that might be. It might be something in your body or in a relationship or at work or even at church. Whatever it might be, you're going through a really dark valley. And I want you to feel the assurance that Jesus' resurrection brings into that place. The assurance of his presence, the assurance of his promise that you will always know his life, the assurance of his power, this limitless power, this power that sits triumphant over every principality and power, over every circumstance, that sits triumphant over death itself, is there available for you. And you can come to Him and bring your need and your request and your situation. And not only is His power and His presence available, but He is praying for you right now, interceding on your behalf that you might be able to keep believing in Him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Father, I pray for all those who are in this room, all those who are outside, those in the creche, those, Lord, who are watching online. Lord, will you minister so powerfully and profoundly to them. I pray that you will encourage their hope today because Jesus is alive. Oh God, because Jesus is alive, that hope will arise in their hearts, oh God. Hope that extends beyond their darkest valley right now. Hope that extends beyond death itself. Hope that extends beyond the grave. That Lord is not so consumed with this fear and the doubt and the darkness that we can't see beyond. But Lord, I pray that each one of us will be encouraged and assured and stirred in our heart because of the resurrection that we remember and celebrate today. That we have hope that Jesus will conquer and triumph, that, that our last enemy, death itself, will be defeated. And Lord, that sin has been dealt with so that our relationship with you, nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that you are with us. Your presence, your power is with us. Oh God, will you stir up our faith 
Lord, that our hearts might be overwhelmed with gratitude this morning for all that you've done. That we might, we might live in the fullness of what the resurrection has accomplished for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.